Chapter Eleven, Another Surprise for the Professor of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City, by Joseph E. Badger Jr. Chapter Eleven, Another Surprise for the Professor. The stranger laughed aloud at this, then seemed surprised that aught of mirth could be awakened where grief and despair had so long reigned supreme. "'You will come with me to—to my den, gentlemen?' he asked, still nervous and plainly loath to do aught which indicated a return to his recent dreary method of living. "'Is the distance great?' asked Professor Featherwit, with a glance towards the aeromotor, then flashing his gaze further as though to guard against possible harm coming to that valuable piece of property. More than ever to be guarded now since the word spoken by this exile, better death in yonder mighty whirlpool than a half-score years' imprisonment here. Not so very far, he was assured, while it would be comparatively easy to float the airship above the trees, there of no extraordinary growth. At the same time this assurance was given, the stranger could not mask his uneasiness of mind, and it was really pitiful to see one so strong in body and limb, so weak otherwise. But Uncle Phaeton was a fairly keen judge of human nature, and possessed no small degree of tact. Divining the real cause of that dread, he took the easiest method of allaying it, speaking briskly as he moved across to the aerostat. "'Bear the gentlemen company, my lads, while I manage the ship. You will know what signals to make, and I can contrive the rest.' Again the recluse laughed, but now it was through pure joy, such as he had not experienced for long years gone by. He was not to be deserted by his rescuers from the whirlpool, and that was comfort enough for the moment. Thanks to that guidance, but little time was cut to waste, Professor Featherwood taking the flying machine away from the shore of the lake, floating slowly above the treetops, guiding his movements by those below, finally effecting a safe landing in a miniature glade, at no great distance from the den alluded to by their new-found friend. "'It will be perfectly safe here,' the exile hastened to give assurance as that landing was made. Then, too, this is the only spot nigh at hand from which a hasty ascent could well be made, even with such an admirable machine as yours. Ah, me! With a long breath which lacked but little of being a sigh, as he keenly, eagerly examined the aerostat. A marvel! Who would have dared predict such another, only a dozen years ago? I thought we had drawn very close to perfection while I was in the profession, but this! Marvellous! Both words and manner gave the keen-witted professor a clue to one mystery, and he quickly spoke. "'Then you were familiar with aerostatics, sir. Your name is—' "'Edgecombe. Cooper Edgecombe.' "'What?' With undisguised surprise in faces and voice. "'Professor Edgecombe, the celebrated balloonist who was lost so long ago?' "'Aye, lost here in this thrice-accursed wilderness.' passionately cried the exile, then, as though abashed by his own outburst, he turned away, pausing again only when at the entrance to his dreary refuge of many years. "'Give the poor fellow his own way until he has had time to rally, boys,' muttered Uncle Phaeton in lowered tones before following that lead. "'I can understand it better now, and this is—still is a terra incognita of which I have dreamed so long.' 
That refuge proved to be a large, fairly dry cavern, the entrance to which was admirably masked by vines and creepers, while the stony soil just there retained no trace of footprints to tell dangerous tales. Mr. Edgecombe vanished, but not for long. Then showing a light formed of fat and twisted wick in a hollowed bit of hardwood, he begged his rescuers to enter. No second invitation was needed, for even the professor felt a powerful curiosity to learn what method had been followed by this enforced exile, how he had managed to live for so many weary years. With only that smoky lamp to shed light around the place, critical investigation was a matter of time and painstaking, although a general idea of the cavern was readily formed. High overhead arched the rocky roof, blackened by smoke, and looking more gloomy than nature had intended. The side walls were likewise irregular, now showing tiny niches and nooks, then jutting out to form awkward points and elbows, which were but partially disguised by such articles of wear and daily use, as the exile had collected during the years gone by, or since his occupancy first began. So much the professor took in with his initial glances, but then he left Waldo and his brother to look more closely, himself giving thought to the being whom they had so happily saved from the whirlpool. "'Professor Edgecombe!' he again exclaimed, grasping those roughened hands to press them cordially. "'I ought to have recognized you at sight, no doubt, since I have watched your ascents time and time again.' The exile smiled faintly, shaking his head and giving another sigh. "'Ah, me! "'Twas vastly different, then. "'I only marvel that you should give me credit when I lay claim to that name. "'So long. "'It has long faded from the public's memory, sir.' But Uncle Phaeton shook his head decidedly. "'No, no, I assure you, my friend, far from it. "'Whenever the topic is brought to the front, whenever aerostatics are discussed, "'your name and fame are sure to play a prominent part, and yet—' You disappeared so long ago, never being heard of after. After sailing away upon the storm for which I had waited and prayed for so many weary, heart-sick months. So the rumor ran, but we all believed that must be an exaggeration, and not for a long time was all hope abandoned. Then more hearts than one felt sore and sad at thoughts of your untimely fate. A fate infinitely worse than ordinary death such as was credited me— huskily muttered the exile. Ten years, and ever since I have been here, helpless to extricate myself, doomed to a living death, which none other can ever fully realize, doomed to—to—his voice choked, and he turned away to hide his emotions. Professor Featherwit thoroughly appreciated the interruption which came through Waldo's lips just at that moment. "'Oh, I say, Uncle Phaeton!' "'What is it, lad? Don't meddle with what doesn't.' "'Looking can't hurt, can it? And to think people ever got along with such things as these!' Waldo was squared before sundry articles depending from the side wall, and as the professor drew closer he too displayed a degree of interest which was really remarkable. A gaily coloured tunic of thickly quilted cotton was hanging beside an oddly shaped war-club, the heavier end of which was armed with blades of stone, which gleamed and sparkled even in that dim light. And attached to this weapon was another, hardly less curious, a knife formed of copper, with heft and blade all from one piece of metal. "'Here is the rest of the outfit,' 
said Edgecombe, holding forth a bow and several feathered arrows with obsidian heads. Professor Featherwit gave a low eager cry as he handled the various articles, both face and manner betraying intense delight, which found partial vent in words a little later. "'Wonderful! Marvellous! Superb! I envy you, sir. I can't help but envy your possession of so magnificent, and so well-preserved, too. That is the marvel of marvels.' "'Well, to be sure, I haven't used them very much. The bow and arrows I could manage fairly well after busy practice. They have saved me from more than one hungry night. But as for the rest—' "'You might have worn the—is it a ghost-dance shirt, though?' hesitatingly asked Waldo, gingerly fingering the wadded tunic. "'Waldo, I'm ashamed of you, boy,' almost harshly reproved the professor. "'Ghost-dance shirt, indeed!' And this one of the most complete, the only perfectly preserved specimen of the ancient Aztec. Pray, my good friend, where did you discover them? Surely there can be no burial mound so far above the latitude where that unfortunate race lived and died. Mr. Edgecombe shook his head with a puzzled look, then made reply. No, sir. I took this all from an Indian I was forced to kill in order to save my own life. I never thought— You are ill, sir. "'Bless my soul!' ejaculated the professor, falling back a pace or two, then sitting down with greater force than grace, all the while gazing upon those weapons like one in a daze. "'Found them! Indian! Killed him in order to! Bless my soul!' Then, with marvellous activity for one of his age, the professor recovered his footing, mumbling something about tripping a heel, then resumed his examination of the curiosities as though he had care for naught beside— Cooper Edgecombe turned away, and the professor improved the opportunity by muttering to the brothers, "'Careful, lads, give the poor fellow his own way in all things, for he is—surely he must be—eh?' Forefinger covertly tapped forehead, for there was no time granted for further explanations. Edgecombe turned again, speaking in hard, even strained tones. Fifteen years ago this month, on the twenty-seventh to be exact— a balloon with two passengers was carried away on a terrific gale of wind which blew from the southeast. This happened in Washington Territory. Can you tell me? Has anything ever been heard of either balloon or its inmates? Professor Featherwit shook his head in negation before saying, Not to my knowledge, though doubtless the prince of the day. Cooper, Edgecombe, shook both head and hand with strange impatience. No, no. I know they were never heard from up to ten years ago, but since then I am a fool to even dream of such a thing, and yet, only for that faint hope, I would have gone mad long ago. Indeed, he looked little less than insane as it was. End of chapter 11「Chapter 12 The Story of a Broken Life of the Lost City this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 12 The Story of a Broken Life This was the idea that occurred to both uncle and nephews, but they had seen and heard enough to excuse all that— and Professor Featherwit spoke again, in mildly curious tones. 
sorry, I am unable to give you better tidings, my good friend. But, so far as my knowledge extends, nothing has come to light of recent years. And, if not a leading question, were those passengers friends of your own? Only, merely my, my wife and little daughter, came the totally unexpected reply, followed by a forced laugh, which sounded anything but mirthful. Uncle Phaeton, intensely chagrined, hastened to apologize for his luckless break, but Cooper Edgecombe cut him short, asking that the matter be let drop for the time being. "'I will talk. I feel that I must tell you all, or lose what few wits I have left,' he declared huskily. "'But not right now. It is growing late. You must be hungry. I have no very extensive larder, but with my little will go to the gratitude of a man who—' His voice choked, and he left the sentence unfinished, hurrying away to prepare such a meal as his limited means would permit. While Edgecombe was kindling a fire in one corner of the cavern, opening a pile of ashes to extract the few carefully cherished coals by means of which the wood was to be fired, uncle and one nephew left the den to look after the flying machine and contents. Bruno remained behind in obedience to a hint from the professor, lest the exile should dread desertion after all. "'Take these in and open them, Waldo,' said the professor, selecting several cans from the stock in the locker. "'Poor fellow! T'will be like a foretaste of civilization, just to see and smell, much less taste the fruit.' "'Even if he has turned loony, eh, Uncle Phaeton?' "'Careful, boy. I hardly think he is just that far gone, but, even if so, what marvel? Think of all he must have suffered during so many long, dreary years, and—his wife and child, I wonder. I do wonder if he really killed. But that is incredible, simply and utterly incredible. An Aztec here, alive!' "'Dead, Uncle Phaeton,' corrected Waldo. "'Killed the redskin, he said, and I really reckon he meant it. Why not, pray?' "'But an Aztec boy!' exclaimed the bewildered savant, unable to pass that point. "'The tunic of quilted cotton, the escapil, the macohidl, with its blades of grass, the bow and arrows, which all, all surely of Aztec and manufacture, yet seemingly fresh and serviceable as though in use but a month ago, and the race extinct for centuries!' "'Well, unless he's a howling liar from way up the creek, he extincted one of them, cheerfully commented Waldo, bearing his canned fruit to the cavern. Professor Featherwood followed shortly after, finding the exile busy, preparing food, looking and acting far more naturally than he had since his rescue from the whirlpool. And then, until the evening meal was announced, Uncle Phaeton hovered near those amazing curiosities, now gazing like one in a waking dream— then gingerly fingering each article in turn, as though hoping to find a solution for his enigma through the sense of touch. Taken all in all, that was far from a pleasant or enjoyable meal. A sense of restraint rested upon each one of that little company, and not one succeeded in fairly breaking it away, though each tried in turn. Despite the struggle made by the exile to hold all emotion well under subjection, Cooper Edgecombe failed to hide his almost childish delight at sight and taste of those canned goods, and it did not require much urging on the part of his rescuers to ensure his partaking freely. 
but the cap-sheaf came when Uncle Phaeton, true to his habit of long years, after eating produced pipe and pouch, the fragrant tobacco catching the exile's nostrils, and drawing a low, tremulous cry from his lips. No need to ask what was the matter, for that eager gaze those quivering fingers were enough. And just as though this had been his express purpose, the professor passed the pipe over, quietly speaking. "'Perhaps you would like a little smoke after your supper, my good friend. Oblige me by—' "'May I? Oh, sir, may I really taste? Oh, oh, oh!' Bruno struck a match and steadied the pipe until the tobacco was fairly ignited, then drew back and left the exile to himself for the time being. And as covert glances told them, never before had their eyes rested upon mortal being so intensely happy— as was the long-lost aeronaut, then and there. At a sign from the professor, Bruno and Waldo silently arose and left the cavern, bearing their guardian company to where the airship was resting. And there they busied themselves with making preparations for the night, which was just settling over that portion of the earth. Presently Cooper Edgecombe appeared, the empty pipe in hand, held as one might caress an inestimable treasure— a dreamy, almost blissful expression upon his sun-browned face. "'I thank you, sir, more than tongue can tell,' he said quietly, as he restored the pipe to its owner. "'If you could only realize what I have suffered through this deprivation, I, an inveterate smoker, yet suddenly deprived of it, and so kept for ten long years, if I had had a pipe and tobacco, I believe—but enough.' "'I can sympathize with you, at least in part, my friend. Will you have another smoke, by the way?' "'No, no, not now. I feel blessed for the moment, and more might be worse than none after so long deprivation. And—may I talk openly to you, dear, kind friends? May I tell you, am I selfish in wishing to trouble you thus? Ten years, remember, and not a soul to speak with.' He laughed, but it was a sorry mirth and not caring to trust his tongue just then, Uncle Phaeton nodded his head emphatically while filling his pot for himself. But Waldo never lacked for words, and spoke out. "'That's all right, sir. We can listen as long as you can chin-chin. Tell us all about—well, what's the matter with that big engine?' "'Quiet, Waldo. Say what best pleases you, my friend. You can be sure of one thing. Sympathetic listeners, if nothing better.' With a curious shiver— as though afflicted with a sudden chill, Edgecombe turned partly away, figure drawn rigidly erect, hands tightly clasped behind his back. A brief silence, then he spoke in tones of forced composure. A balloon was the best, in my day, and I was proud of my profession, although even then I was dreaming of better things, of something akin to this marvellous creation of yours, sir. Casting a fleeting glance at the airship, then at the face of its builder, afterward resuming his former attitude. Let that pass, though. I wanted to tell you how I met with my awful loss, how I came to be out here in this modern hell. I had a wife, a daughter, each of whom felt almost as powerful an interest in aerostatics as I did myself. And one day—but wait. I had an enemy, too, one who had, years before, sought to win my love for his own— in vain the cur. And that day we were out here in Washington Territory, 
living in comparative solitude, that I might the better study out the theory I was slowly shaping in my brain. The day was beautiful, but almost oppressively warm, and, as they so frequently wished, I let my dear ones up in the balloon, securely fastening it below. And then, God forgive me, I went back to town for something. I forget just what now. A sudden storm came up. I hurried homeward. Home to me was wherever my dear ones chanced to be. But I was just too late. The devil of all devils was ahead of me, and I saw him. Merciful God! I saw him. Cut the ropes and let the balloon dart away upon that awful gale. His voice choked, and for a few minutes silence reigned. Knowing how vain must be any attempt to offer consolation, the trio of air voyagers said nothing, and presently Cooper Edgecombe spoke. I killed the demon. I nearly tore him limb from limb. I would have done just that, only for those who came hurrying after me from town, knowing that I might need help in bringing my balloon to earth in safety. They dragged me away, but twas too late to cheat my miserable vengeance. That hound was dead. But my darlings were gone for ever. Another pause, then quieter, more coherent speech. God alone knows whether my wife and child were taken. The general drift was in this direction, but how far they were carried, or how long they may have lived, I can only guess. Enough that, despite all my inquiries, made far and wide in every direction, I never heard aught of either balloon or passengers. After that, I had but one object in life, to follow along the track of that storm, and either find my loved ones, or or some clue which should forever solve my awful doubts. And for two long years or more I fought to pierce these horrid fastnesses, all in vain. No mortal man could succeed, even when urged on by such a motive as mine. Then I determined upon another course. I worked, and slaved, until I could procure another balloon, as nearly like the one I lost as might be constructed. Then I watched, and waited for just such another storm as the one upon whose wings my darlings were borne away, meaning to take the same course, and so find. "'Why, man, dare you must have been insane!' impulsively cried the professor, unable longer to control his tongue. "'Perhaps I was. Little wonder if so,' admitted Edgecombe, turning that way with a wan smile lighting up his visage. "'I could no longer reason. I could only act.' I had but that one grim hope, to eventually discover what time and exposure to the weather might have left of my lost loves. Then, after so long waiting, the storm came, blowing in the same direction as that other. I cut my balloon loose, and let it drift. I looked and waited, hoping, longing, yet failing. I was wrecked here in this wilderness. My balloon was carried away. I failed to find aught. Cooper Edgecombe turned towards the airship with a sigh of regret. "'If one had something like this, then, I might have found them, even alive. But now, too late, eternally too late!' End of chapter 12「Chapter 13 the Lost City of the Aztecs Of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City 
by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 13 The Lost City of the Aztecs Uncle Phaeton was more than willing to do the honors of his pet invention, and this afforded a most happy diversion, although the deepening twilight hindered any very extensive examination. Cooper Edgecombe showed himself in a vastly different light while thus engaged, his shrewd questions, his apt comments, quite effectually removing the far from agreeable doubts born of his earlier words and demeanor. "'Well, if he's loony, it's only on some points, not as the whole porker, anyway,' confidentially asserted Waldo, when an opportunity offered. "'Coke seemed to tell how he knocked the redskin out, Uncle Phaeton.' little need of recalling that perplexing incident to the worthy savant, for, try as he might, Featherwit could not keep from brooding over that wondrous collection of relics pertaining to a long-since extinct people. Of course, the last one had perished ages ago, and yet, and yet. Through his half-bewildered brain flashed the accounts given by the coast tribes, members of which he had so frequently interviewed concerning this unknown land, one and all of whom had more or less to say in regard to a strange people, terrible fighters, mighty hunters, one burning glance from whose eyes carried death and decay unto all who were foolhardy enough even to attempt to pass those mighty barriers built up by a beneficent nature. Only for that nearly impassable wall the entire earth would be overrun and dominated by these monsters in human guise. Then— after the airship was cared for to the best of his ability, and the night-guard set in place so that an alarm might give warning of any illegal intrusion, the little party returned to the cavern home of the exile, where, after another refusal on his part, the professor filled and lighted his beloved pipe. Almost in spite of himself, Featherwit was drawn towards those marvellous articles depending from the wall, and, as he gazed in silent marvel, Cooper Edgecombe drew nigh with still other articles to complete the collection. "'You may possibly find something of interest in these two, dear sir, although I have given them rather rough usage. This formed a rather comfortable cap, and—a helmet! And sandals! A satch which is, yes, worn about the waist mainly to support weapons, and termed a maxlatl, which— and all sufficiently well-preserved to be readily recognized as genuine, unless—surely I am dreaming. If not precisely that, the worthy professor assuredly was almost beside himself, while examining these articles of warrior's wear, one by one, knowing that neither eyes nor memory were at fault, yet still unable to believe those very senses. Up to this, Cooper Edgecombe had felt but a passing interest in the matter, forming as it did but a single incident in a more than ordinarily eventful life, but now he began to divine at least a portion of the truth, and his face was lighted up with unusual animation, when Phaeton Featherwit turned that way to almost sharply demand. "'Where did you gain possession of these weapons and garments, sir? And how? From whom?' "'I took them from an Indian nearly two years ago.' He caught me off my guard, and when I saw that I could neither hide nor flee, I fought for my life," explained the exile, then giving a short bitter laugh to add, "'Strange, is it not? Although I had long since grown weary of existence such as this, I fought for it, a turned wild beast, as it were. 
Then, after all was over, I took these things, more because I feared his comrades might suspect. "'His comrades?' echoed the professor. "'More than the one, then. You killed him, but there were others still.' "'Many of them, far too many for any one man to withstand,' earnestly declared the exile. "'I made all haste in bearing the redskin here, obliterating all signs as quickly as possible, yet for days and nights I cowered here in utter darkness, each minute, expecting an attack from too powerful a force for standing against.' Uncle Phaeton rubbed his hands briskly, shifting his weight hurriedly from one foot to its mate, then back again, the very personification of eager interest and growing conviction. More of them! A strong force, armed and garbed as of old! The clothing, the footwear, and above all else, the weapons, purely Aztecan, and here only two short years ago! Sadly, long and hideously dreary years I have found them, sir, the exile said in dejected tones. The professor burst into a shrill, excited laugh, which sounded almost hysterical, and, not a little to the amazement of his nephews, broke into a regular dance, jigging it right merrily, hands on hips, head perked and chin in air, at the same time striving to carry the tune in his far from melodious voice. After all, perhaps no better method could have been taken to work off his almost hysterical excitement, and presently he paused, panting and heated, chuckling after an abashed fashion, as he encountered the eyes of his nephews. "'Not a word, my dear boys,' he hastened to plead. "'I had to do something, or—or explode. I feel better now. I can behave myself, I hope. I am calm, cool, and composed, as—the genuine Aztecs. And we are the ones to discover that—oh, I forgot—' for Waldo was fairly exploding with mirth, while Bruno smiled, and even the exile appeared to be amused, to a certain extent, at his expense. Little by little the worthy savant calmed down, and then, almost forcing the exile to indulge in another delicious smoke, he led up to the subject in which his interest was fairly intense. Cooper Edgecombe was willing enough to tell all that lay in his power— although he was only beginning to realize how much that might mean to the world at large, judging by the actions of the professor. According to his account, the great lake or drainage reservoir of the Olympics was a sort of semi-yearly rendezvous for a warlike tribe of red men, where they congregated for the purpose of catching and drying vast quantities of fish, doubtless to be used during the winter. As a general thing, they pitched their camp on the other side, over towards the northeast, but small parties are pretty sure to row far and wide, coming around this way quite as often as not. "'And their garb, the weapons they bore?' asked the professor. Edgecombe motioned towards those articles in which such a lively interest had been awakened, then said that, while few of the red men who had come beneath his near observation had been so elaborately equipped— he had taken notice of similar weapons and garments with additions which he strove hard to describe with accuracy. Nearly every sentence which crossed his lips served to confirm the marvellous truth which had so dazzlingly burst upon the professor's eager brain, and with a glib tongue he named each weapon, each garment, as accurately as ever set down in ancient history, not a little to the wide-eyed amazement of Waldo Gillespie. "'Worse than those blessed sour us and cousins,' he confided to his brother in a whisper. "'Reckon it's all right, Bruno. Uncle isn't, eh?' 
But Uncle Phaeton paid them no attention, so deeply was he stirred by this wondrous revelation. He felt that he was upon the verge of a discovery which would startle the wide world as no recent announcement had been able to do, unless—but it surely must be correct. And then, when Cooper Edgecombe finished all he could tell concerning those queerly armed and gaudily garbed red men, the professor let loose his tongue, telling what glorious hopes and dazzling anticipations were now within him. For hundreds upon hundreds of years there have been wild, weird legends about the lost city, but that merely meant a mass of wondrous ruins, long since overwhelmed by shifting sands, somewhere in the heart of the great American desert, so-called. By some it was claimed that this ancient city owed its primal existence to a fragment of the Aztecs, driven from their native quarters in old Mexico. By others it was attributed unto one of the fabulous lost tribes of Israel, but even the most enthusiastic never for one moment dreamed of this. "'Except yourself, Uncle Phaeton,' cut in Waldo with a subdued grin. "'This must be one of the marvels you calculated on discovering, thanks to the flying machine, eh?' "'Nay, my boy, I never let my imagination soar half so high as all that,' quickly answered the professor. "'But now, now I feel confident that just such a discovery lies before us, and with the dawn of a new day we will ascend and look for the glorious lost city of the Aztecs.' Again the savant sprang to his feet, wildly gesticulating as he strode to and fro, striving to thus work off some of the intense excitement which had taken full possession. And words fell rapidly from his lips the while, only a portion of which need be placed upon record in this connection, however. A fico for the paltry lost cities of musty tradition now. They may sleep beneath the sandstorms of countless years, but this— I would gladly give one of my eyes for the certainty that its mate might gaze upon such a wondrous spectacle as—oh, if it might only prove true, if I might only discover such a stupendous treasure—Aztecs, and in the present day, alive, armed, and garbed as of yore! Amazing! Incredible! Astounding beyond the wildest dreams of a confirmed— With startling swiftness, Uncle Phaeton wheeled to confront the exile, gripping his arm with fierce vigour as he shrilly demanded. "'Opium! Are you an eater of drugs, Cooper Edgecombe?' Even as the words crossed his lips, the professor realized how preposterous they must sound. But the exile shook his head earnestly. "'I never ate drugs in that shape, sir. Even if I had been addicted to morphine and the like, how could I indulge the appetite here in these gloomy, lonely wilds?' "'I beg your pardon, sir. Most humbly I implore your forgiveness. I have but one excuse, this wondrous—good night. I am going to bed before I add to my new reputation as a blessed idiot, no less.'" End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 A Marvelous Vision of the Lost City this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 15 A Marvelous Vision But the night was considerably older ere any one of that quartet lost himself in slumber, for all had been too thoroughly wrought up by the exciting events of the past day, 
force leave to claim an easy subject. By common consent, however, that one particular subject was barred for the present, and then, sitting in a cosy group about the glowing fire there in the cavern, the recently formed friends talked and chatted, asking and answering questions almost past counting. Little wonder that such should be the case, so far as Cooper Edgecombe was concerned, since he had been lost to the busy world and its many changers for a long decade. Then, too, his own dreary existence held a strange charm for the air voyagers, and the exile grew wonderfully cheerful and bright-eyed, as he in part depicted his struggles to sustain life against such heavy odds, and still strove to keep alive that one hope that even yet he might be able to discover a clue to his loved and lost ones. Not alive. I have long since abandoned that faint hope. But if I might only find something to make sure, something that I could pray over, then bury where my heart could hover above. You are still alive, good friend, yet you have spent long years out here in the wilderness, gently suggested the professor. Edgecombe flinched, as one might when a rude hand touches a still raw wound. But they, my wife, my baby girl, they could never have lived as I have existed. They surely must have perished, if not at once, than when the first cruel storms of hideous winter came howling down from the far north. Unless they were found and rescued by, who knows, my good sir? Forcing a cheerful smile, which unfortunately was only surface-born, as the exile lifted his head with a start and a gasping ejaculation. Since it seems fairly well proven that this supposedly unknown land is actually inhabited, why may your loved ones not have been rescued? The Indians? You mean, by the Aztecs, sir? If Aztecans they should really prove, why not? But surely I have heard. Sacrifices? Huskily breathed the greatly agitated man, while the professor, realizing how he was making a bad matter worse, brazenly falsified the records, declaring that no human sacrifices had ever stained the record of that noble, honorable, gallant race, and then changed the subject as quickly as might be. Nevertheless, there was one good effect following that talk. Cooper Edgecombe had dreaded nothing so much as the fear of being left behind by these, the first white people he had seen for what seemed more than an ordinary lifetime. But now, when the professor hinted at a longing to take a spin through ether for the purpose of winning a wider view, he eagerly seconded that idea, even while realizing that it would be difficult to take him along with the rest. Still, nothing was definitely settled that evening, and at a fairly respectable hour before the turn of night, the air voyagers were wrapped in their blankets and soundly slumbering. Not so the exile. Sleep was far from his brain, and while he really knew that danger could hardly menace that wondrous bit of ingenious mechanism, he watched it throughout that long night, ready to risk his own life in its defense should the occasion arise. Why not, since his whole future depended upon the aeromotor? By its aid he hoped to reach civilization once more, and in spite of the great loss which had wrecked his life, he was thrilled to the center by that glorious prospect. Here he was, dead while breathing. There he would at least be in touch with his fellow men once more. An early meal was prepared by the exile, and in readiness when his trio of guests awakened to the new day, 
and then, while busily discussing the really appetizing viands placed before them, the next move was fully determined upon. Not a little to his secret delight, the professor heard Edgecombe broach the subject of further explorations, and seeing that his excitement had passed away in goodly measure during the silent watches of the night, he talked with greater freedom. "'Of course we'll keep in touch with you here, friend, and take no decisive move without your knowledge and consent. Our fate shall be yours, and your fate shall be ours, only I would dearly love to catch a glimpse of, if there should actually be a lost city in existence.' If there is, as there surely must be, one of some description, judging from the number of red men I have seen collecting here at the lake, observed the exile, you certainly ought to make the discovery with the aid of your airship. You can ascend at will, of course, sir. Nothing loath, the professor spoke of his pet and its wondrous capabilities, and then all hands left the cavern for the outer air to prepare for action. As a further assurance, Uncle Phaeton begged Edgecombe to enter the aerostat, then skilfully caused the vessels to float upward into clear space, sailing out over the lake even to the whirlpool itself before turning, his passenger eagerly watching every move and touch of hand, asking questions which proved him both shrewd and ingenious from a mechanical point of view. Returning to their starting point, Edgecombe sprang lightly to earth to make way for the brothers, face ruddy, and eyes aglow as he again begged them all to keep watch for aught which might solve the mystery yet surrounding the fate of his loved ones. The promise was given, together with an earnest assurance that they would soon return, then the parting was cut as short as might be, all feeling that such a course was wisest and kindest after all. For an hour or more the airship sped on, high in air, its inmates viewing the various and varying landmarks beneath and beyond them, all marvelling at the fact that such an immense scope of country should for so long be left in its native virginity, especially where all are so land-hungry. Then, as nothing of especial interest was brought to their notice, Uncle Phaeton quite naturally reverted to that suit of Aztecan armour, and the glorious possibilities which the words of the exile had opened up to them as explorers. Bruno listened with unfeigned interest, but not so his more mercurial brother, who took advantage of an opening left by the professor to bluntly interject. "'What mighty good, even if you should find it all, Uncle Phaeton! You couldn't pick it up and tote it away to start a dime museum with. And, as for my part, I'll tell you what, if we could only find something like Aladdin's cave now!' "'Growing miserly in your old age, are you, lad?' mocked his uncle. "'No, I don't mean just that. His trees were hung with riches, but mine should be crammed and crowded full of plum pudding, fruit cake, angel food, mince pies, and the like. Yes, and there should be fountains of lemonade, and mountains of ice-cream, and sandbars of caramels, and chocolate drops, and trilbies, and, well, now what's the matter with you fellows, anyway?' He spoke with boyish indignation at that laughing outbreak, but the kindly professor quickly managed to smooth the matter over, although not before Waldo had promised Bruno a sound thumping the first time they set foot upon land. Until past the noon hour that pleasant voyage lasted, without any remarkable discovery being made, the trio munching a cold lunch at their ease rather than take the trouble to effect a landing. 
But then, not very long after the sun had begun his downward course, there came a change which caused Featherwit's blood to leap through his veins far more rapidly than usual. For yonder, still a number of miles away, there was gradually opening to view a hill-surrounded valley of considerable dimension, certain proportions of which betrayed signs of cultivation, or at least of vegetation different from aught the explorers had as yet come across since entering that land of wonders. Almost unwittingly, Professor Featherwit sent the airship higher, even as it sped onward at quickened pace, his face as pale as his eyes were glittering, intense anticipation holding him spellbound for the time being. And then the wondrous truth. "'Behold!' he cried shrilly, pointing as he spoke. "'Houses yonder, cultivated fields, and, see, human beings in motion, who are—' "'Kicking up a great old bobbery, just as though they'd sighted us and wanted to know. I say, Uncle Phaeton, how would it feel to get punched full of holes by a parcel of bow-arrows?' With a quick motion the airship was turned, darting lower and off at a sharp angle to its former course, for the professor likewise saw what had attracted the notice of his younger nephew. Scattered here and there throughout that secluded valley were human beings, nearly all of whom had sprung into sudden motion, doubtless amazed or frightened by the appearance of that oddly shaped air-demon. Brief though that view had been, it was sufficiently long to show the professor houses of solid and substantial shape, cultivated plots, human beings, and a little river whose clear water sparkled and flashed in the sunlight. It was very hard to cut that view so short, but the professor had not lost all prudence, and he knew that danger to both vessel and passengers might follow a nearer intrusion upon the privacy of yonder armed people. Yet his face was fairly glowing with glad exultation, as he brought the aerostat to a lower strata of air, shutting off all view from yonder valley as it lay amid its encircling hills. "'Hurrah!' he cried, snatching off his hat and waving it enthusiastically, as the airship floated onward at ease. "'At last! Found! We have discovered it at last! And all is true! All is true!' "'Found what, Uncle Phaeton?' asked Waldo a bit doubtfully. "'The lost city of the Aztecs, of course! Oh, glad day! Glad day!' "'Unless, what if it should prove to be only a—a a mirage, Uncle Phaeton?' almost timidly ventured Bruno a moment later. End of chapter 14《Chapter Fifteen Astounding Yet True of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter Fifteen Astounding Yet True the professor gave a great start at this almost reluctant suggestion, shrinking back with a look which fell not far short of being horrified. But then he rallied, forcing a laugh before speaking. "'No, no, Pruno. All conditions are lacking to form the mirage of the desert. And, too, everything was so distinct and clearly outlined that one could—' "'Fairly feel those blessed bow-arrows tickling a fellow in the short ribs!' 
vigorously declared the younger Gillespie. "'Not but that! I say, Uncle Phaeton!' "'What is it now, Waldo?' "'Reckon they're like any other people? Got boys and, and girls among em, I wonder?' "'I dare say yes. Why not?' answered Featherwit, scarcely realizing what words were being shaped by his lips, while Bruno broke into a brief-lived laugh, more at the half-sheepish expression than at the query itself. "'Both boys and girls galore, I expect, kid. But you needn't borrow trouble on either score. You cannot run the lads, while as for the fairer sex, well, they'll take. Precious good care to keep well beyond your reach, especially if you wear such another fascinating grin as—' "'Oh, you go to thunder, Bruno Gillespie!' Through all this interchange the airship was maintaining a wide sweep, drawing nearer the forest beneath, if only to keep hidden from the eyes of the strange people in yonder deep valley. Yet the gaze of Phaeton Featherwit, as a rule, kept turned towards that particular point, his eyes on fire, his lips twitching, his whole demeanour that of one who feels a discovery of tremendous importance lies just before him. "'Are we going to land, Uncle Phaeton?' queried Bruno, taking note of that preoccupation which might easily prove dangerous under existing circumstances. That question served to recall the professor to more material points, and after a keen sweeping look around he nodded assent. Yes, as soon as I can discover or secure a fair chance, I wish to see more. I must secure a fairer view of the—of yonder place. Will it not be too dangerous, though? Not for us especially— "'Uncle, but for the aerostat, even if these be not the people you imagine. "'They are past all doubt a remnant of the ancient Aztecs. "'Yonder lies the true lost city, and we are—oh, try to comprehend all that statement means, my lads. "'Picture to yourselves what boundless fame and unlimited credit awaits our report to the outer world. "'The benighted world, the besotted world, the—the—' the, while we'll form the unspotted world, or a portion of it, without something is done, and that in a howling hurry, too," fairly spluttered Waldo, as the again-neglected airship sped swiftly towards a more elevated portion of that earth, part of the tall hill-crest, which acted as nature's barricade to yonder by nature-depressed valley. "'Time enough, lad, time enough, since we are going to land.' coolly assured the professor, deftly manipulating the steering gear and still currying around those tree-crowned hills. If we are really hunted after, it will naturally be in the quarter of our vanishment, while, by alighting around yonder, nearly at right angles with our initial approach, we will have naught to fear from the—the the Aztecan clans. Clearly the professor had settled in his own mind just what lay before them, and nothing short of the lost city of the Aztecs would come anywhere near satisfying that exalted ideal. And taking all points into full consideration, was there anything so very absurd in his method of reasoning, or of drawing a deduction? Still, that exaltation did not prevent Uncle Phaeton from taking all essential precautions, and it was only when an especially secure landing-place was sighted that he really attempted to touch the earth. Fully one half of that wide circuit had been made, and as nothing could be detected to give birth to fears for either self or airship, the aeronauts skillfully landed their vessel with only the slightest of jars. It was a well-screened location, where naught could be seen of the flying machine until close at hand, yet so arranged as to make a hasty flight a very easy matter should the occasion ever arise. 
Not until the landing was effected and all made secure did Professor Featherwit speak again, than it was with gravely earnest speech which suitably affected his nephews. "'Above all things, my dear lads, bear ever in mind this one fact. We are not here to fight. We do not come as conquerors, weapons in hand, hearts filled with lust of blood. To the contrary, we are on a peaceful mission, hoping to learn, trusting to enlighten, with malice towards none, but honest love for all those who may wear the human shape, be they of our own color, or—' or otherwise. "'That's what's the matter with Hannah's cat,' cheerfully chipped in the irrepressible Waldo. "'I say, Uncle Phaeton, is it just a lie low here until yonder fellows grow tired of looking for what they can't find? Then a flight on our part, or will we—' "'Have we voyaged so far and seen so much to rest content with so very little?' exclaimed the professor, hardly as precise of speech as under ordinary conditions." "'No, no, my lads. Yonder lies the greatest discovery of the nineteenth century, and we are—get a hustle on, boys, the day's waning, and with so much to see, to study, to—come, I say!' In spite of his initial attempt to impress his nephews with a due sense of the heavy responsibilities which rested upon them, Phaeton Featherwit was far more excited than either one of the brothers. Doubtless he more nearly appreciated the importance of this wondrous discovery— provided his now firm belief was correct, that yonder stood a solid, substantial city, erected by the hands of a people whom common consent had agreed were long since wiped out of existence. The story told by Cooper Edgecombe, backed up by the articles taken from the person of the warrior whom he had slain in self-defence, certainly had its weight— while the brief and imperfect glimpse which he had won of yonder valley helped to bear out that astounding belief. And yet, how could it be true? Really believing, yet forced by more sober reason to doubt, the poor professor was literally in a sweat, long ere another view could be won of the depressed valley, although the landing of the airship was so well chosen as to make that trip of the briefest duration consistent with prudence. The natural obstacles were considerable, however, and as they picked their way along, the brothers for the first time began to gain a fairly accurate idea of what was meant by the term, a virgin forest. To all seeming, the human foot had never ventured here, nor were any marks or spore of wild beasts perceptible on either side. Although the aerostat had landed not far below the crest of those hills, the adventurers had to climb higher before winning the coveted view, partly because the most practicable route led down into and along a winding gulch, where the footing was far less treacherous than upon the higher ground, cumbered as that was with a leaf-mould of centuries. Still half an hour's steady labor brought the little squad to the coveted point, and once again Professor Featherwit was almost literally stricken speechless, for there, far below their present location, spread out in level expanse, lay the secret valley with all its marvels. Far more extensive than it had appeared by that initial glimpse, the valley itself seemed composed of fertile soil, yet by aid of the river, which cut through, near its centre, irrigating ditches, conveyed water to every acre, thus ensuring bounteous crops of grain and of fruit as well. 
numerous buildings stood in irregular array, for the most part of no great height, nor with many pretensions towards architectural beauty or grace of outline. But in the centre of the valley upreared its head a massive structure, pyramidal in shape, consisting of five comparatively narrow terraces, connected one with another only at each of the four corners, where stood a wide-stepped flight of stones. Behold! huskily gasped the professor, intensely excited, yet still able to control the field-glass through which he was eagerly scanning yonder marvels. The temple of the gods! And yonder, the temple of sacrifice, unless my memory is! And look, the people are! They wear just such garb as— Oh, marvellous! Amazing! Astounding! Incredible, yet true! Although their uncle could thus take in the various details to better advantage, still the intervening distance was not so great as to entirely debar the brothers from finding no little to interest them, as was readily proven by their various exclamations. "'Just look at the people, will you now? Flopping around like they hadn't any bigger business than to. Reckon they're looking for us to come back, Bruno?' "'Or watching for the monster bird of prey, rather.' suggested the elder Gillespie. Of course they couldn't distinguish our faces, and our bodies were fairly well hidden. And even more, of course, they must be totally ignorant of all such things as flying machines and the like. "'Poor ignorant devils!' sympathetically sighed the youngster. "'Well, we'll have to do a little missionary work in this quarter before taking our departure, eh, Uncle Phaeton?' With a start, Featherwood descended out of the clouds in which he had been lost ever since winning a fair view of the secret city, and now rallying his wits and fairly aglow with eager interest in this marvellous discovery, he began pointing out the various objects of special importance, naming them with glib assurance, then reminding the boys how wonderfully similar all was to what had existed in old Mexico before the conquest. Bruno listened with greater interest than his brother could summon at will. For one thing, he had long been a lover of the genial Prescott, and, now that his memory was freshened in part, was able to closely follow the course of that little lecture, noting each strong point made by the professor in bolstering up his delightful theory. That monologue, however, was abruptly broken in upon by Waldo, who gave an eager exclamation as he reached forth a pointing finger. "'Look! There's a white woman yonder! Two of them, in fact!' End of chapter 15of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 16 Can It Be True? That announcement came with all the force of a bolt from the blue, and even the professor dropped his glasses with a gasp of amazement while Bruno would have leapt to his feet only for the hasty grab which his brother made at the tail of his coat. "'What? Where? Surely it cannot be that Edgecombe!' "'Ah! Oh, take a tumble, boy!' ejaculated Waldo, 
giving a jerk that rendered compliance nearly literal, though scarcely full of grace. "'Want to have the whole gang make a howling break this way? Want to? They're white all right, though.' "'Where? Which direction? Point them out, and—' "'I fail to see anything which would bear out your—' The professor was sweeping yonder field with his glass, searching for the primal cause of that latest excitement, but without success. No sign of a white face, male or female, rewarded his efforts, and he turned an inquiring gaze upon the youngster. Waldo was peering from beneath the shade of his hand, but now drew back with a long breath to slowly shake his head. "'They've gone now, but I did see them, and they were white, just as white as—as anything!' Bruno frowned a bit at that unsatisfactory conclusion, but the professor was of more equable temper for a wander. He smilingly shook his head while gazing kindly, then spoke. "'I myself might have made the same error, Waldo, but you surely were in error for once.' "'What? You mean I never saw those white women, Uncle Phaeton?' "'No, no, I am not so seriously faulting your eyesight, my dear boy,' came the swift assurance. But even the best of us are open to errors, and there were, in olden times, not a few Aztecs with fair skins, not exactly white, yet comparatively fair when their race was considered. And, no doubt, Waldo, you saw just such another a bit ago. But the youngster was not so easily shaken in his own opinion. There were a couple of them, not just such another, uncle, and they were white, pure white as ever the Lord made a woman. And— why didn't I see their hair, long and floating loose? And wasn't that yellow as—as as gold or the sunshine itself? Yellow hair? Yes, indeedy. Yellow hair, white skins, faces, anyway. Blondes, the couple of em, and to that I'll make my Davy. And so the youngster maintained with even more than usual sturdiness, when questioned more closely, pointing out the very spot upon which the strange beings were standing the top of a large, tall building, clearly one of the series of temples. In vain the field-glass was fixed upon that particular point. The partly-roofed azotea was wholly devoid of human life, and though watch was maintained in that direction for many minutes thereafter, by one or other of the air-voyagers, naught was seen to confirm the assertion made by the younger Gillespie. For the moment that fact or fancy dominated all other interests, for, granting that Waldo had not been misled by a naturally fair Indian face, there was room for a truly startling inference. "'Could it actually be they?' muttered Bruno, face pale and eyes glittering with intense interest. "'Could they have escaped with life from the balloon and been here ever since?' "'You mean—' "'The wife and child of Cooper Edgecombe, yes. "'Who else could they be, unless? "'I'd give a pretty penny for one fair squint at them right now. "'If there was only some method of— "'It would hardly do to venture down yonder, Uncle Phaeton.' "'The professor gave a stern gesture of denial, "'frowning as though he anticipated an actual break for yonder town, "'in spite of the odds against them. "'That would be madness, Bruno. "'Worse than madness by far.' Look at yonder warriors, all thoroughly armed, and eager to drink blood as ever they were in centuries gone by. They are hundreds, if not thousands, while we are but three. Madness, my boy. Four with Mr. Edgecombe, uncle. And that means a complete host so long as we were backed up by the airship, declared Waldo in his turn. Those fellows— 
with a sniff of true boyish scorn for aught that was not fully up-to-date. "'What could they do if we were to open fire on them just once?' "'Prove our equals, man for man, armed as they assuredly are.' Just as vigorously, affirmed the professor, inclined rather to magnify than diminish the importance of these, his so recently discovered people. You forget how the Aztecans fought Cortez and his mailed hosts. Yet these are one and identical, so far as valor and training and blood can go. <laughs> Scared of a runty horse so badly that they prayed to him as they did to their own gods, sniffed Waldo, betraying a lore for which he did not ordinarily receive fair credit. "'Why, Uncle Phaeton, let you just slam one of those dynamite shells inside a chief?' "'Nay, Waldo, must I repeat we are not here for the purpose of conquest, unless by purely amicable methods. There must be no fighting for or against. Savages, though most people would be inclined to pronounce yonder race, they are human, with souls, and—' "'But I always thought they were heathens, Uncle Phaeton.' The professor subsided at that, giving over as worse than useless the attempt to enlighten the irrepressible youngster, at least for the time being. Silence ruled for some little time, during which each one of the trio kept keen watch over the valley, the field-glass changing hands at intervals in order to put all upon an equal footing. One thing was clear enough unto all. The Indians had been greatly wrought up by the brief appearance of some queerly shaped monster of the air and while a goodly number of their best warriors had hastened out of the valley, and up the difficult passes in hopes of learning more, still others were astir, weapons in hand, evidently determined to defend their lives or their property from any assault, should such be made, whether by known or foreign adversaries. This busy stir and bustle, combined with the novel architecture and so many varying points of interest, would have been a mental and visual feast for the trio of air voyagers, only for that one doubt. Were white captives actually in yonder temple? And if white, were they the long-lost relatives of the aeronaut Cooper Edgecombe? Quite naturally, the interest displayed by the Indians centered in the quarter of the heavens where that air-demon had been sighted, Hence our friends saw very little cause for apprehension on their own parts. Thus they were given a better opportunity for thinking of and then discussing the new marvel. Again did Waldo vow that his eyes had not befooled him. Again he positively asserted that he had seen two white women, wearing blonde hair in loose waves far down their backs. And once again Bruno, in half-awed tones, wondered whether or no they were the mother and child borne away upon the wings of a mighty storm, fifteen long years gone by. "'It is possible, though scarcely credible,' admitted Uncle Phaeton in grave tones, as he wrinkled his brows after his peculiar fashion when ill at ease in his mind. Edgecombe lived through just such another experience, though to be sure he was a man of iron constitution, while they were far more delicate as a matter of course.' "'Still, it may have happened so,' persisted Bruno, taking a strong interest in the matter. "'You would not call it too far-fetched, uncle?' "'No, it may have happened. I would rather call it marvellous, yet still possible. And if so—' "'There is but a single answer to that supposition, uncle. They must be rescued from captivity,' forcibly declared Bruno. "'That's right,' confirmed Waldo. "'Of course all women and girls—' 
I mean, other people's kin, are a tremendous sight of bother and worry, and all that, but we're white, and so are they. We must rescue them. There's nothing else to do, again emphasized the elder Gillespie. That is no doubt the proper caper, speaking from your boyish point of view, my generous-hearted nephews. But just how? dryly queried the professor. Have you arranged all that as well, Bruno? You surely would not abandon them, Uncle Phaeton? asked the young man, something abashed by that veiled reproof. To such a horrible fate, too. A fate which they must have endured for fifteen years, provided your theory is correct, Bruno, with a fleeting smile. Don't mistake me, lads. I am ready and willing to do all that a man of my powers may, provided I see just and sufficient cause for taking decisive action. That is yet lacking. We are not certain that there are white women yonder, or if white women that they are captives, or if captives that they would thank us for aiding them to escape. Why, Uncle Phaeton, think of Mr. Edgecombe and how— I am thinking of him, and I wish to think yet a little longer, quietly spoke the professor. Keep a lookout, lads, and if you see aught of Waldo's fair women, pray notify me. For the better part of an hour, comparative silence reigned. The boys feasting eyes upon yonder spectacle, their uncle deeply in reverie, but then he roused up, his final decision arrived at. I will do it, were his first words. Yes, I will do it. "'Do what, Uncle Phaeton?' asked Waldo, with poorly suppressed eagerness, as he turned towards his relative. "'Go after Cooper Edgecombe, bringing him here, in order that he may, sooner or later, solve this perplexing enigma. Come, boys, we may as well start back towards the aerostat.' But both youngsters objected in a decided manner, Waldo saying, "'No, no, Uncle Phaeton, why should we go along? You'll be coming right back, and we'll be less crowded in the ship if we don't go.' "'And we can better wait right here, don't you see, uncle?' "'To keep the lost city safely found, don't you know? "'What if it should take a sudden notion to lose itself again?' added Waldo innocently. End of chapter 16「Chapter 17 An Enigma for the Brothers of the Lost City this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 17 An Enigma for the Brothers In place of the indulgent smile for which he was playing, Waldo received a frown, and directly thereafter the professor spoke in tones which could by no possibility be mistaken. "'Come with me, both of you. I am going back to the aerostat, and I dare not leave you boys behind. Come!' Kind of heart, and generally complacent, though Uncle Phaeton was, neither Bruno nor Waldo cared to cross his will when made known in such tones, and without further remonstrance they followed his lead— slipping away from the snug little observatory without drawing attention to themselves from any of yonder busy horde. Not until the trio was fairly within the gulch did the professor speak again, and then but a brief sentence or two. "'Give me time to weigh the matter, lads. Possibly I may agree, but don't try to hurry my cooler judgment, please.' 
Waldo gave his brother an eager nudge at this, gestures and grimaces being made, to supply the lack of words. But when, the better to express his confidence that all was coming their way, the youngster attempted a caper of delight, his foot slipped from a leaf-hidden stone, and he took an awkward tumble at full length. "'Never touched me!' he cried, scrambling to his feet ere a hand could come to his aid. "'Who says I don't know how to stand on both ends at the same time?' Barring this little caper knot took place on their way to the airship, and, once there, the professor heaved a mighty sigh, wiping his heated face as one might who has just won a worthy race. But he betrayed no especial haste in setting the flying machine afloat, and Waldo finally ventured. "'Can we help you off, Uncle Phaeton?' But he was assured there existed no necessity for such great haste. In fact, it might be dangerous to start while so many of the Aztecs are upon the lookout, came the unexpected addition. I believe it would be vastly better not to live here until shortly before dawn tomorrow. It took but a few words further to convince the brothers that this idea was wisest, and while the young fellows felt sorry to have their view cut so short, neither ventured to actually rebel. After all, the day was well-nigh spent, and besides preparing their evening meal, it was essential that their plans for the immediate future should be shaped as thoroughly as possible. Professor Featherwit had resolved to fetch Cooper Edgecombe to the scene of interest, in order to give him at least a fair chance to solve the enigma which was perplexing them all. Even so, he felt that no small degree of physical danger would attend that presence, particularly if it should really prove, as they could but suspect, that both wife and daughter of the involuntary exile were yonder, among the Aztecans. Much of this the professor made known to his nephews during that evening, the trio thoroughly discussing the matter in all its bearings, but before the airship was prepared for the night's rest, Uncle Phaeton made the youngsters happy by consenting to their remaining behind as guardians to the lost city, while he went in quest of the balloonist. "'But bear ever in mind the conditions, lads,' was his earnest conclusion. "'I place you upon your honour to take all possible precautions against being discovered, or even running the least unnecessary risk during my absence.' "'Don't let that bother you, Uncle Phaeton.' Waldo hastened to give assurance. "'We'll be wise as pigeons, and cautious as any old snake you ever caught up a tree, eh, Bruno, old man?' "'We promise all you ask, uncle, but does that mean we must stay right here without even stealing a winty peep at the lost city?' Professor Featherwit felt sorely tempted to say yes, but then knowing boyish nature, although Bruno had just passed his majority while Waldo was turned seventeen, so while he feared to draw the reins— too tightly, lest they give way entirely. No, I do not expect quite that much, my lads, but I do count on your taking no unnecessary risks, and in case of discovery that you rather trust to flight, and my finding you later on than to actually fighting. So it was decided, and at a fairly early hour the trio lay down to sleep. Although so unusually excited by the marvellous discoveries of the day just spent, their open-air life tended to calm their brains, and far sooner than might have been expected, sleep crept over them one and all, lasting until nearly dawn. 
Perhaps it was just as well that the awakening was not more early, for the professor was beginning to regret his weakness of the past evening, and had there been more time for drawing lugubrious pictures of probable mishaps, he might even yet have insisted on taking the youngsters with him. Knowing that it was rather more than probable some of the Indians would be stationed upon the hills to watch for the queerly shaped air demon, the professor felt obliged to lose no further time, and so the separation was effected, just as the eastern sky was beginning to show streaks and veins of a new day. "'Touch and go!' cried Waldo, with a vast inhalation as he watched the aeromotor sail away with the swiftness of a bird on wing. "'And for a windy bit I reckon twas you and me as part of the go, too!' In company the lads enjoyed a more leisurely meal than their relative had dared wait for, knowing that, at the very least, they would have the whole of that day to themselves so far as Uncle Phaeton was concerned. As a matter of course, he would not attempt to return except under cover of night, or in the early dawn of another day. All that had been thoroughly discussed and provided for the evening before, and was barely touched upon by the brothers now. Their first and most natural thought was of yonder lost city, with its inhabitants, red, white, and yellow, as Waldo put it, but being still under the foreboding fears of the professor, they finally agreed to remain where he left them, until after the sun crossed its meridian. It was a rather early meal which the brothers prepared, if the whole truth must be told, and the last fragments were bolted rather than chewed, feet keeping time with jaws as they hastened towards the observatory. There was pretty much the same sort of view as on the day before, the main difference being that many of the Indians were laboring in the fields instead of watching for the air demon. Using the glass by turns, the lads kept eager watch for the white women, whom Waldo stubbornly persisted were within the town, but hour after hour passed without the desired reward, and Bruno began to doubt whether there was any such vision to be won. "'The sun was in your eyes, and you let mad fancy run away with your better judgment, boy,' he decided at length. "'If not, why, what now?' For Waldo gave a low, eager exclamation, gripping the field-glass as though he would crush in the reinforced leather-case. A few moments thus, then he laughed in almost fierce glee, thrusting the glass towards his brother, speaking excitedly. "'A crazy fool lunatic, am I? Well, now, you just take a squint at the old house for yourself and see if—biting you now, is it?' For Bruno showed even more intense interest as he caught the right line, there taking note of—yes, they surely were white women. Faces, hair, all went to proclaim that fact, and more than that, even. "'Fair, lovely as a painter's dream,' almost painfully breathed the elder Gillespie. I never saw such a lovely— Injun squaw, of course. Couple of em. Nobody but a fool would ever think different. The idea of finding white women— They are ladies, Waldo. I never saw such, and I feel that they must be the ones lost by poor Edgecombe when that storm— That's all right enough, old fellow, interrupted Waldo, claiming the glass once more. No need of your playing the porker on legs, though, as I see— Give another fellow a chance to squint. But aren't they regular Joe Dandies, though, for a fact? 
The two women in question, clad in flowing robes of white, lit up here and there by a dash of color, were slowly pacing to and fro upon the temple, were first discovered by the keen-eyed youngster. Thanks to the excellent glass, it was possible to view them clearly in spite of the distance, and there could be no dispute upon that one point. Both mother and daughter, granting that such was their relationship, were more than ordinarily fair and comely of both face and person. For the better part of an hour that slow promenade lasted, and until the women finally passed beyond their range of vision, the brothers took eager and copious notes. Then, in spite of the fact that scores of other figures still came within their field of vision, curiosity lagged. "'It's like watching a street medicine show after hearing Patty or seeing Irving,' muttered Bruno, drawing back and stretching his wearied limbs beyond possible discovery." "'Or the ABC class playing to old cat after a league game of extra innings. Right you are, my hearty,' coincided Waldo, feeling pretty much the same way. "'Only with a difference.' Shortly after this, Bruno suggested a retreat to the rendezvous, and for a wander his brother agreed without amendment. The brothers passed down to the gulch, which formed the easiest route to their refuge, saying very little, and that in lowered tones. The confirmation so recently won served to stir their hearts deeply, and neither boy could as yet see a way out of the labyrinth that discovery most assuredly opened up before them. "'Of course we can't leave them there to drag on such a wretched existence,' declared Bruno. "'We couldn't do that, even though we learned they held no relationship to Mr. Edgecombe. But how?' "'I reckon it's—what?' abruptly spoke Waldo, gripping an arm and stopping short for a few seconds, but then impulsively springing onward again, as wild sounds arose from no great distance. A score of seconds later they caught sight of a huge grizzly bear in the act of falling upon a slender stripling, whose bronze hue as surely proclaimed one of the Aztec children from yonder lost city. What was to be done? Disobey their uncle, or leave this lad to perish? End of chapter 17by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 18 Something Like a White Elephant Only a lad, slight-limbed and slenderly framed to the eye, yet for all that gifted with a gallant heart, else he surely must have been cowed to terror by the huge bulk of such a dire adversary at close quarters. Instead of trying to find safety in headlong flight, the Indian stood at bay, with both hands firmly gripping the shaft of his copper-bladed spear, at far too close quarters for employing bow and arrows, while the copper knife in his sash was held in reserve for still closer work. Snarling, growling, displaying its great teeth while clumsily waving enormous paws which bore talons of more than a finger-length, the bear was balanced upon its hind-quarters, evidently just ready to lurch forward with striking paws and gnashing teeth. 
its enormous weight would prove more than sufficient to end the contest ere it fairly began, while a slight stroke from those taloned paws would both slay and mutilate. No one was better aware of all this than the Indian lad himself, yet he took the initiative, swiftly darting his spear forward, lending to its keen point all the power of both arms and body. A suicidal act it certainly appeared, yet one which could scarcely make his position more perilous. An awful roar burst from Bruin as he felt that thrust, the blade sinking deep and biting shrewdly, but then he plunged forward, striking savagely as he dropped. The Indian strove to leap backward an instant after delivering his stroke, but still clung to the spear-shaft. This hampered his action to a certain degree, yet in all probability that stout ashen-shaft preserved his life, which that wound would otherwise have forfeited. The stroke but brushed a shoulder, nor did a claw take fair effect, yet the stripling was felled to earth as though smitten by a thunderbolt. All this before the brothers could solve the enigma thus offered them so unexpectedly, but that fall and the awful rage displayed by the wounded grizzly as he briefly reared erect to grind asunder the spear-shaft decided the white lads, and temporarily forgetting how dangerously nigh were yonder Aztecan hosts, both Bruno and Waldo opened fire with their Winchester rifles, sending shot after shot in swift succession into the bulky brute, fairly beating him backward under their storm of lead. Victory came right speedily, but its finale was thrilling, if not fatal. The huge beast, toppling forward, dropped heavily upon the young savage, just as he was recovering sufficiently from shock and surprise to begin a struggle for his footing. Firing another couple of shots, while rifle muzzle almost touched an ear, the brothers quickly turned attention towards the fallen Indian, more than halfway believing him a corpse, crushed out of shape upon the underlying rocks by that enormous carcass. Fortunately for all concerned, the young Aztec was lying in a natural depression between two firm rocks, and while his extrication proved to be a matter of both time and difficulty, saying nothing of main strength, success finally rewarded the efforts of our young Samaritans. The grizzly was stone dead. The Indian seemed but a trifle better, though that came through compression rather than any actual wounds from tooth or talon, and the brothers themselves were fairly dismayed. Not until that rescue was finally accomplished did either lad give thought to what might follow, but now they drew back a bit, interchanging looks of puzzled doubt and worry. "'Riding it up to our necks, old man, and we can't very well kill the critter, can we?' "'Of course not, but it may cause us sore trouble if—' Just then the young Aztec rallied sufficiently to move, drawing a step nearer the brothers, right hand coming out in greeting, while left palm was pressed close above his heart, and still greater marvel. "'Much obliged me, you brother!' If yonder bleeding grizzly had risen erect, and made just such a salutation as this, it could scarcely have caused greater surprise to either Bruno or Waldo, looking upon this being, as they quite naturally did, in the light of a genuine heathen, hence incapable of speaking any known tongue, much less the glorious Americanese. True, there was a certain odd accent, a curious dwelling upon each syllable, but the words themselves were distinctly pronounced and beyond misapprehension. "'Why, I took you for a howling injun!' 
fairly exploded Waldo, then stepping forward to clasp the proffered member, giving it a regular pump-handle shake by way of emphasis. "'And here you are, slinging the pure United States around just as though it didn't cost a cent, and you held a mortgage on the whole dictionary. Why, I can't—well, well, now!' For once, in a way, the glib-tongued lad was at a loss just what to say and how to say it, for, after all, this surely was a redskin, and the professor had explicitly warned them against—oh, dear! Was it all a dizzy dream? For the Aztec drew back, speaking rapidly in an unknown tongue, then sinking to earth like one overpowered by sudden physical weakness. Bruno Gillespie, too, was recalling his uncle's earnest cautions, and now took prompt action— he quickly secured the weapons which had been scattered as the Indian fell before the grizzly's paw. Then the brothers drew a little apart to consult together. "'What'll we do about it?' whisperingly demanded Waldo, keeping a wary eye upon yonder redskin. "'You tell, for blamed if I know how!' "'We daren't let him go free, else he might fetch the whole tribe upon our track,' said Bruno, in the same low tones, no whit less sorely perplexed as to their wisest course." "'No, and yet we can't very well kill him, either. "'If we hadn't come along just as we did, or if—but he's a man, after all. "'Who could stand by and see that ugly brute make a meal off even an engine?' "'Bruno cast an uneasy look around, "'at the same time deftly refilling the partly exhausted magazine of his Winchester. "'Load up, Waldo. "'Burning powder reaches mighty far, even here in the hills, "'and who knows, the whole tribe may come helter-skelter this way "'to see what has broken loose, and we can't fight them all.' "'Not unless we just have to,' agreed the younger Gillespie, placing a few shells where they would be handiest in case of another emergency. "'But what's the use of running, if we're to leave this fellow behind to blaze our trail? If he's our enemy—' "'No enemy. Exley friend. Heart brother!' eagerly vowed the young Aztec, once again startling the lads by his strange command of a foreign tongue. He rose to his feet— though plainly suffering in some slight degree from that brief collision with the huge beast, and smiling frankly into first one face, then the other, took Bruno's hand, touched it with his lips, then bowed his head and placed the whiter palm upon his now uncovered crown. In like manner he saluted Waldo, after which he drew back a bit, still smiling genially to add in slowly spoken words, "'You save Ixli. Bear kill no. You kill, yes. Ixli, glad.' Son children great, big heart full of love. So, Ixley never do hurt, never do wrong. Die for white brother, so. More through gesticulation than by speech, the young Indian brave made his sentiments clearly understood, and if they could have placed full dependence in that pledge, the brothers would have felt vastly relieved in mind. But they only too clearly recalled numerous instances of cunning ill-faith, and, in despite of all, they could not well avoid thinking that this was really something like a white elephant thrown upon their hands. "'All right. Play we swallow it all, but keep your best eye peeled, old man,' guardedly whispered Waldo. "'Fetch him along, yes or no, for it may be growing worse than dangerous right here after so much shooting.' "'You mean for us to—' "'Take the fellow along and keep him with us until Uncle Phaeton comes back to finally decide upon his case,' promptly explained Waldo. "'Of course we ought to have let him die, ought, but didn't. We couldn't then, wouldn't now, if it was all to do over. So watch him so closely that he can't play tricks even if he wishes.' There was nothing better to propose, and though the job promised to be an awkward one to manage, 
Ixley himself rendered it more easy. Past all doubt he could understand, as well as speak, the English language, for he took a step in evident submission, speaking gently. Ixtli ready. Heart brother say where go now. Again the brothers felt startled by that quaintly correct accent, and almost involuntarily Bruno spoke in turn. You can speak English. When did you learn, and from whom? A still brighter smile irradiated the Aztec's face, and turning his eyes towards the secluded valley, he bowed his head as though in deep reverence, then softly, lovingly, almost adoringly responded. She tell me how. Victor, gladdy to. Ixtli no little, not much. His heart feel big for son children, all time. So you, too, for kill bear like that. Bruno turned a bit paler than usual, catching his breath sharply as he repeated those names. Victor, Gladdy, Wasn't it by those names, Victoria, Gladys, that Mr. Edgecombe called his lost ones, Waldo? I can't remember, but get a move on, old man. The sooner we're back where Uncle Phaeton left us, where we can see a bit more of what may be coming, the safer my precious scalp will feel. This engine— No scalp quickly interposed the Aztec, with a deprecatory gesture to match his words. "'You save Ixli. Ixli say no hurt, white brothers. That's so. That's sure for truth.' Only partially satisfied by this earnest disclaimer of evil intentions, Waldo gripped an arm and hurried the Aztec along, leaving the bear where it had fallen, intent solely upon reaching a comparatively safe outlook, ere worse could follow upon the heels of their latest adventure." and Bruno brought up the rear as guard, eyes and rifle ready. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 The Children of the Sun God of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 19 The Children of the Sun God No difficulty whatever was experienced in reaching that retreat, and a milder prisoner never knew a guard than Ixtli proved himself to be, silently yielding to each impulse lent his arm by Waldo, smiling when, as sometimes happened, he was brought more nearly face to face with that armed rear-guard. Nor were the Gillespie brothers worried by sound, sign, or token of more serious trouble from others of that strangely surviving race and it was not long after reaching the rendezvous from which the professor had sailed in the early dawn that the youngsters agreed the echoes of their winchesters could not have reached the ears of the lost city inhabitants that's plenty good luck for one soup bunch quoth waldo yet adding a dubious shake of the head as he gazed upon their bronzed companion and if it wasn't for this gentleman in masquerade costume ixtli friend Ixtli feel like heart-brother, came in low, mellow accents from those smiling lips. There certainly was not of guile or of evil craft to be read in either eyes or visage, just then. But then the brothers could not feel entirely at ease, even yet. How many times had warriors of his color played a cunning part, only to end all by blow of tomahawk, 
thrust of knife or bolt from the bended bow. At a barely perceptible sign from Bruno, his brother drew apart, leaving their white elephant by himself, yet none the less under a vigilant guard. "'He seems all right in his way,' muttered the elder Gillespie. "'But how far ought we to trust him, after what we promised Uncle Phaeton?' "'Not quite as far as we can see him, anyway. Still, a fellow can't find the stomach to bowl him over like a hare, without a weeny bit of excuse at least.' "'That's it. If he tried to bolt or would even jump on one of us, it would come far more easy. Look at him smile now, and I hate to think of clapping such a bright-seeming lad in bonds.' "'Time enough for all that when he shows us cause,' quickly decided Waldo, with a vigorous nod of his curly pow. "'Pity if a couple of us can't keep him out of mischief without going that far. And we want to pump the kid dry before Uncle Phaeton gets back, understand?' Bruno gave a slight start at these words, but his eye-glow and face-flush bore witness that the idea thus suggested had not been unthought of in his own case. "'Then you really think—' "'That there's more ways than one of skinning a cat,' oracularly observed Waldo. "'Without showing it too mighty plainly, one of the other of us can always be ready and prepared to dump the laddie buck, in case he tries to come any of his didos.' and at the same time we can be hugging up to him just as sweetly as though we knew he was on the dead level. Understand? Possibly the program might have been a little more elegantly expressed, but Waldo as a rule cared more for substance than form, and his speech possessed one merit, that of perspicuity. Having reached this fair understanding, the brothers dropped there aside, and moved nearer the young Aztec. Ixtli gazed keenly into first one face, then the other, plainly enough endeavouring to read the truth as might be expressed therein, as related to himself. What he saw must have proved fairly satisfactory, since he gave another bright smile, then spoke in really musical tones. "'Good, brother, now, that more good, too!' In spite of the suspicions which seem inborn where people of the red race are concerned, both Bruno and Waldo felt more and more drawn towards this remarkable specimen of a still more remarkable tribe, and not many more minutes had sped by ere the younger couple were chatting together in amicable fashion, although finding some little difficulty in Exley's rather limited vocabulary. Not a little to his elder brother's impatience, Waldo apparently took a deeper interest in the recent adventure than in the subject which claimed his own busiest thoughts, but he hardly cared to crowd the youngster, lest he make matters even worse. Aided by the sort of freemasonry which naturally exists between lads of an adventurous nature, Waldo readily succeeded in picking up considerable information from the Aztec, even before broaching that all-important matter. Ixley was the only son of a famed warrior and chieftain of the Aztecan clans, by name Azotl, or the Red Heron. He, in common with so many of his people, had witnessed the approach and abrupt departure of the strange bird in the air, and had hastened forth in quest of the monster. He failed to see aught more of the strange creature, but, disliking to return home without something to show for the trip, remained out overnight, then chanced to fairly stumble into the way of a mighty grizzly. There were a few moments during which he might possibly have escaped through headlong flight, but he was too proud for that, and, but for the timely arrival and prompt action on the part of his white brothers, would almost certainly have paid the penalty with his life. 
Then followed more thanks and broken expressions of gratitude, all of which Waldo magnanimously waved aside as wholly unnecessary. "'Don't work up a sweat for a little thing like that, old man. Of course we saw you were an Injun, and—ahem, I mean, how in time did you happen to catch hold of our lingo so mighty pat, laddie buck?' "'My brother means to ask, who taught you to speak as we do, Ixley?' amended Bruno, catching at the wished-for opportunity now it offered. "'And who was that nice little gal with the yellow hair? Is she—what do you call her—Gladys and the rest of it Edgecombe?' Waldo was eager enough now that the ice was fairly broken, but his very volubility served to complicate matters rather than to hasten the desired information. Ixley apparently thought in English pretty much as he spoke it, slowly and with care. When hurried, his brain and tongue naturally fell back upon his native language. Sounds issued through his lips, but, despite all their animation, these proved to be but empty sounds to the eager brothers. And divining the truth, Bruno checked his brother, himself acting as questioner, pretty soon striking the right chord, after which Ixley fared very well. Still, thanks to his difficulty in finding the right words with which to express his full meaning, it took both time and patience for even Bruno to learn all he desired, and even if such a course would be desirable, lack of space forbids giving a literal record of questions and answers, since the general result of that cross-examination may be put so much more compactly before the generous reader. The first point made clear was that the young Aztec owed his imperfect knowledge of the English language to certain children of the sun, whom he named as if christened, Victo and Gladi. With this as starting point, the rest formed a mere question of time and perseverance. Growing in animation as he proceeded, Ixley told of the coming to their city of those glorious children, riding upon the wings of an awful storm, yet issuing unharmed, unawed, bright of face as the mighty orb the sons of Anahuac worshipped. He told how an envious few held to the contrary, that these fair skins had come as evil emissaries from still more evil Miglantwetli, mighty lord of Deathland, who had laden them with pestilence and brain-sorrow and eye-darkness, with orders to devastate this, the last fair city of the ancient race. With low, sternly suppressed tones, the young warrior went on to tell of what followed. Of the wicked attempt made by those malcontents to punish the bearers of death and misery, then, his voice rising and growing more clear, he told how, from a clearing sky, there came a single shaft flung by the mighty hand of the great god Quetzalcoatl, before which the impious dog went down in everlasting death. "'Struck by lightning, eh?' interrupted Waldo, who seemed born without the influence of poetry. "'Served him mighty right, too!' Bowing submissively, although it could be seen he scarcely comprehended just what those blunt words were meant to convey, Ixley spoke on, seemingly with perfect willingness, so long as the adored son-children formed the subject-matter. From his laboured statement, Bruno gathered that the sudden death of one who had dared to lift an armed hand against the woman so mysteriously placed there in their very midst awed all opposition to the general belief in the divine origin of mother and child, and ere long Victor was installed as a sort of high priestess of the temple more especially devoted to the sun-god. That was long ago, and when Ixley was but a child— 
as he grew older and his father, Red Heron, was appointed as chief of guards to the Sun Children, Victo took more notice of the lad, and ended in teaching him both the English tongue and its Christian creed, so far as lay in his power to comprehend. Then came less pleasing information concerning the children of the sun, which went far to prove that the death of one evil-minded dog had not entirely purged the lost city, and it was with harsher tones and frowning brows that Ixtli spoke of the head-priest, or Papa, Lacopa, the evil-minded, who had built up a powerful and dangerous sentiment against both Victor and Gladi, even going so far as to declare before the holy stone of sacrifice that the mother of gods demanded these falsely titled children of the sun. "'The fair-faced god must come soon or too late,' sighed the Aztec, bowing his head in joined palms the better to conceal his evident grief. "'He has promised to come, but hurry! They die! They die!' This was hardly an acceptable stopping-point, but questioning was of little avail just then. Satisfied of so much, the brothers drew apart a short distance, yet keeping where they could guard their more or less dangerous charge, conversing in low tones over the information so far gleaned from the Aztec's talk. "'Well, we'll hold a tight grip on him anyway, until Uncle Phaeton gets back,' finally decided Waldo, speaking for his brother as well. End of chapter 19by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 20 The Professor and the Aztec Fortunately for all concerned, there proved to be no serious difficulty attached to that same holding. So far as outward semblance went, Ixtli was very well content with both present quarters and present companionship. He likewise enjoyed the supper that, aided by a small fire kindled in a depression so low that the light could by no means attract any unfriendly eye, Bruno prepared for them all. And just prior to taking his first taste, the young warrior bowed his head to murmur a few sentences which, past all doubt, had first come to his mind through the wonderful Victo, a simple little blessing, which certainly did not add to the dislike or uneasiness with which the brothers regarded their guest. "'He's white, even if he is red,' confidentially declared Waldo, at his first opportunity. "'More danger of our spoiling him than he's doing us dirt, and that's an honest fact for a quarter, old man.' Bruno felt pretty much the same, yet his added years gave him a greater discretion, and in spite of that growing liking, he kept a fairly keen watch and ward over the Aztec. After supper they came further questioning and answers, Waldo as a rule playing inquisitor, eager to learn more anent the strange existence which these people must live, so completely hemmed in from all the rest of the world, as they surely were in yonder valley. Without at all betraying the exile, Gillespie spoke of the lake and its mighty whirlpool, then learned that the Indians really made semi-annual trips 
thither for the purpose of laying in a supply of dried fish for the winter's consumption. As the night waned, preparations were made for sleeping, although it was agreed between the brothers that one or the other should stand guard in regular order. "'Not that I really believe the fellow would play as dirt, even with every chance laid open,' Waldo admitted. "'Still, it's what Uncle Phaeton would advise, and we can't well do less than follow his will, Bruno.' "'Since we broke it so completely by tackling the grizzly,' with a brief laugh, "'That's all right, too. Of course we'd ought to have skulked away like a couple of egg-sucking curs, but we didn't, and I'm mightily glad of it, too. For Ixtli, what a name that is to go to bed with every night, though. For Ixtli is just about as white as they make em nowadays. You hear me blow my bazoo?' And so the long night wore its length along, the brothers taking turns at keeping watch and ward, but the Aztecs slumbering peacefully through all, looking the least dangerous of all possible captives. And after this light even the cautious Bruno began to regard him ere the first stroke of coming dawn could be seen above the eastern hills. Not being positive just where the airship would put in an appearance, since Professor Featherwood had, perforce, left that question open, to be decided by circumstances over which he might have no control, each guard in turn devoted considerable attention to the upper regions, hoping to glimpse the aerostat and holding matches in readiness, to raise a flare by way of a lighting signal. But it was not until the early dawn that Bruno caught sight of the airship just skimming the treetops, the better to escape observation by any Indian lookout. After that the rest came easily enough. A couple of blazing matches held aloft proved sufficient cue to the professor, and soon thereafter the flying machine was safely brought to land, so gently that the slumbers of the young Aztec were undisturbed. Bruno gave a hasty word of warning and explanation combined, even before he extended a welcoming hand towards Mr. Edgecombe, who certainly appeared all the better for his encounter with people of his own race. Professor Featherwood took a keen, eager look at the slumbering redskin, then drew silently back to whisper in Bruno's ear, "'Guard well your tongue, lad. I have told him nothing as yet, and we must consult together before breaking the news. For now we have had no rest, so I believe we would better lie down for an hour or two. Mr. Edgecombe appeared to be perfectly willing to do this, and soon the wearied men were wrapped in blankets and sleeping peacefully. Long before their lids unclosed, Bruno had an appetizing meal in readiness, although the others had broken fast long before, and, ixtly, his hands tightly clasped behind his back as a child is wont to resist temptation, was inspecting the airship in awed silence. Taking advantage of this preoccupation, Bruno quickly yet clearly explained to his uncle all that had happened, showing that by playing a more prudent part the young warrior must inevitably have perished. Then, making sure Cooper Edgecombe was not near enough to catch his words, Bruno told in brief the information gleaned from Ixtli concerning the children of the son, whom he and Waldo more than suspected must be the long-lost wife and daughter of the exiled aeronaut. As might have been expected, Professor Featherwit was deeply stirred by all this, fidgeting nervously while keeping alert ears, with difficulty smothering the ejaculations which fought for exit through his lips. After satisfying his craving for food, the professor led the young Aztec apart from the rest of the party, speaking kindly and sympathetically, until he had won a fair share of liking for his own, then broaching the subject of the son-children. 
After this it was by no means a difficult matter to get at the seat of trouble, and little by little Featherwit satisfied himself that Ixtli would do all, dare all, for the sake of benefiting the woman and maiden who had treated him so kindly. At a covert sign from the professor, Bruno came to join in the talk, and his sympathy made the young Aztec even more communicative. And Ixtli spoke more at length concerning Tlacopa, the papa, and another enemy whom the children of the sun had nearly equal cause to fear, one Huatzin, or Prince Hua, chiefest among the mighty warriors of the Aztecan clans. This evil prince had for years past sought victor for his bride, while his son, Iosetl, tried in vain to win the hard smiles of the fair Gladi, Victo's daughter, and through revenge for having their suit frowned upon, these wicked knaves had joined hands with the priest in trying to drag the sun-children down from their lofty pedestal. It did not take long questioning or shrewd to convince the professor that in Ixtli they could count upon a true and daring supporter in case they should conclude to interfere in behalf of his patroness and teacher, adored Victo. The professor led the way over to the airship, there producing the clothing and arms once worn by another Aztec warrior, which he had carefully stowed away in the locker, loath to lose sight of such valuable relics, truly unique as he assured himself at the moment. Bruno gave a little exclamation at sight of the articles, then in eager tones he made known the daring idea which then flashed across his busy brain. We ought to make sure before taking action, Uncle Phaeton. Then why not let me don these clothes and steal down into the valley, under cover of darkness, to see the ladies and— No, no, my lad, quickly interrupted the professor, gripping an arm as though fearful of an instant runaway. That would be too risky. That would be almost suicidal. And no use talking. With an obstinate shake of his head, as Bruno attempted to edge in an expostulation, I will never give my consent. Never! "'Or hardly ever,' supplied Waldo, coming that way like one who feels the proprieties have been more than sufficiently outraged. "'Give some other person a chance to wag his chin a bit, can't ye, gentlemen? Not that I care to chatter merely for sake of hearing my own voice, but eh?' "'We were considering whether or no twould be advisable to take a walk over to the observatory,' coolly explained the professor. "'Of course, if you would rather remain here to watch the aerostat—' "'Let Bruno do that, uncle. He grew thoroughly disgusted with what he saw over yonder yesterday,' placidly observed the youngster. "'Waldo, you villain! Well, didn't you vow and declare that you could recognize grace and beauty, and all other varieties of attractiveness only in dark brunettes, old man?' Professor Featherwit hastily interposed, lest words be let fall through which Mr. Edgecombe might catch a premature idea of the possible surprise held in store and shortly afterwards the start was made for the snug covert from whence the lost city had been viewed on prior occasions. Naturally, their route led them directly past the scene of the bear fight, where the huge carcass lay as yet undisturbed, and calling forth sundry words of wonder and even admiration through its very ponderosity and now harmless ferocity. Professor Featherwit deemed it his duty to gravely reprove his wards for their rash conduct, Yet something in his twinkling eyes and in the kindly touch of his bony hand told a far different tale. His anger took the shape of pride and of heart-love. In due course of time the lookout was won, 
and without delay the savant turned his field-glass upon the temple, which appeared to appertain to the so-called sun-children, but not a little to his chagrin the azotea was utterly devoid of human life. But that disappointment was of brief existence, for almost as though his action was the signal for which they had been waiting, mother and daughter came slowly into view, arm in arm, clad in robes of snowy white, with their luxuriant locks flowing loose as upon former occasions. Both lads, three of them to be more exact, gave low exclamations of eager interest as those shapes came in sight, while even Cooper Edgecombe gazed with growing interest upon the scene, wholly unsuspecting though he was as yet. A slight nod from the professor warned the brothers to stand ready in case of need. Then he offered the exile the glass, begging him to inspect yonder fair women upon the Teokalili. The glass was levelled and held firmly for a half-minute. Then the exile gave a choking cry, gasping ere he fell as one smitten by death. "'Merciful heavens! My wife! My child!' End of chapter 20「Discussing Ways and Means of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 21 Discussing Ways and Means. In good measure prepared for some such result, in case their expectations should prove true, friendly hands at once closed upon the exile, hurrying him back and still more completely under cover, as quickly as might be. Cooper Edgecombe seemed as wax in their hands, not utterly deprived of consciousness, but rather like one dazed by some totally unexpected blow. He made not the slightest resistance, yielding to each impulse given, shivering and weak as one just rallying from an almost mortal illness. Yet there came an occasional flash to his eyes, which warned the wary professor of impending trouble, and as quickly as might be the stunned aeronaut was removed from the point of observation, taken by short stages back to the spot where rested the flying machine. Ixley, seemed something awed by this, to him, inexplicable conduct on the part of the gaunt-limbed stranger, but gave his new-found friends neither trouble nor cause for worry, bearing them company and even lending a hand whenever he thought it might be needed. The Gillespie brothers were far more deeply stirred, as was natural, but even Waldo contrived to keep a fair guard over his, at times unruly member, speaking but little during that retreat. With each minute that elapsed, Cooper Edgecombe gained in bodily powers, and while his mental strength was slower to respond, that proved to be a blessing rather than otherwise. The rendezvous was barely gained ere he gave a hoarse cry of reviving memory, then strove to break away from that friendly care, calling wildly for his wife, his daughter, fancying them in some dire peril from which alone his arms could preserve them. 
It was a painful scene as well as a trying one that which followed closely, and respite only came after bonds had been applied to the limbs of the madman, for such Cooper Edgecombe assuredly was just then. There were tears in the professor's eyes as he strove hardest to soothe the sufferer, assuring him that his loved ones should be restored to his arms, yet repeatedly reminding him that any rash action taken then must almost certainly work against their better interests. The exile grew less violent, but that was more through physical exhaustion than aught else, and what had, from the very first, appeared a difficult enigma, now looked far worse. Only when fairly well assured that the sufferer would not attract unwelcome attention their way through too boisterous shouting did the professor draw far enough away for quiet consultation with his nephews. Mr. Edgecombe was deposited within the airship, secured in such a manner that it would be well-nigh impossible for him to do either himself or the machine material injury, no matter how violent he might become, and hence, in case of threatened trouble from the inmates of the lost city, flight would not be seriously hindered through caring for him. Professor Featherwit now gleaned from his nephews pretty much all they could tell him concerning sights and events since his departure in quest of the exile. That proved to be very little more than he had already learned, and contained still less which seemed of especial benefit to that particular enigma awaiting solution. True, Waldo suggested that Ixley be employed as a medium of communication between the sun-children and themselves, but possibly because, as a rule, this irrepressible youngster's ideas were generally the wildest and most far-fetched imaginable, Uncle Phaeton frowned upon the plan. No, the young Aztec might prove true at heart, even as indications went, but the risk of so trusting him would prove far too great. That's just because you haven't known and slept with him like we have, declared Waldo. He's red on the outside, but he's got just as white a soul as the best of us, bar none. Bruno likewise appeared to think well of the young brave, and suggested an amendment to Waldo's motion, that he accompany Ixley into the sunken valley, covered by the friendly shades of night, there to open communication with the sun-children. "'By so doing we could make certain of their identity,' the young man argued earnestly. "'That, it appears to me, is the first step to be taken.' for in spite of the apparent recognition by Mr. Edgecombe, it is possible that no actual relationship exists. "'What of that?' bluntly cut in the younger Gillespie. "'Don't you reckon strangers would like to take a little walk just as well as any other people?' "'Patience, my lad,' interposed the professor. "'While we seem in duty bound to lend aid and assistance to women in actual distress, we can only serve them with their own free will and accord. Granting that the women we saw upon the Teokalili were other than those believed by our afflicted friend. But, uncle, look at their names! And don't Ixley say, well, Tell them all over again, partner, won't you? urged Waldo, taking a burning interest in the matter as was his custom when fairly involved. The young Aztec complied as well as lay within his power, giving it as his fixed opinion that sore trouble, if not actual peril, awaited the children of the sun, 
unless assisted by powerful friends. He spoke of the mighty chieftain, Prince Hua, and of the high priest, Tlacopa, who was, to all seeming, playing directly into the hands of the Tsin. He say, Mother of gods, call loud. He say, sacrifice, and that, no, no, Quetzal send, Quetzal save, must save Victor Gladi. Further questioning resulted in but little more information, though, as Ixley grew calmer, he emphasized such statements as he had already made, elaborating them a trifle, and by this his questioners learned that, humanly speaking, the fate of the sun-god's children depended almost entirely upon the whim or fancy of the chief Paba of the Teokalili. Through Tlacopa issued the awesome oracles, and when his voice thundered forth the dread Fiat, who dared to openly rebel? Further questioning brought forth one more important fact, that there was absolutely no hope of either Victo or Gladi coming forth from the valley, either by night or by day. While ostensibly free of will as they were of limb, neither woman was permitted to leave yonder temple save under armed escort, and guards were on duty each hour of the day and night. "'But we could get to see and speak with them, Ixley?' asked Bruno, eager to reach some fair understanding as to the future course of action. "'Yes. White brother, go with Ixley.' came the hesitating reply, but then the Aztec caught one of Gillespie's hands, holding it in close contrast to his own brown paw, shaking his head doubtingly. No like. Keen eye, dem people. Watch close. Find another white skin bad. You hear that, Bruno? asked the professor, really relieved at such positive evidence in conflict with a rash proposition made by the young man. "'Of course I thought of going under cover of the night, uncle, "'and surely it would not be such a difficult matter "'to darken my face and hands. "'With dirt, if nothing better, can be found. "'And if I wore the clothes you brought from the cavern, Uncle Phaeton?' "'That's the ticket!' broke in Waldo eagerly. "'Why, in a rig like that I could turn the trick my own self!' "'The consultation was broken off at this juncture "'by a faint summons from Cooper Edgecombe,' and Professor Featherwit was only too glad of the excuse, hurrying over to the flying machine, finding to his great joy that the exile was now far more like his old-time self. Still, great caution was used in revealing all, and it was not until considerably later in the day that Mr. Edgecombe felt capable of taking part in the discussion of ways and means. He declared that his recognition had been complete in spite of the long years which had elapsed since losing sight of his dear ones, and he earnestly vowed to never give over until their rescue was effected, or he had lost his life while making the attempt. While the two air voyagers were thus engaged in talk, Bruno silently stole away with Ixtli, taking a bundle along, and leaving Waldo to throw their uncle off the track in case his suspicions should be prematurely awakened. Then, side by side, two Indian braves silently approached the aerostat, causing Professor Featherwit to make a hasty dive for his dynamite gun to repel a fancied onslaught. "'Sold again, and who comes next?' merrily exploded Waldo, dancing about in high glee, 
as the supposed redskin slowly turned around for inspection before speaking in familiar tones. "'Would there be such an enormous risk of discovery, Uncle Phaeton, provided I put lock and seal upon my lips, save for the ladies?' That experiment proved to be a complete success, and after Cooper Edgecombe added his pathetic pleadings to the young man's own arguments, Professor Featherwit gradually gave way, though still with reluctance. "'I could never find forgiveness should harm come to your mother's son, boy,' he huskily murmured, his arm stealing about Bruno's middle. "'I'd far rather venture myself, and why not, pray?' as Waldo burst into an involuntary laugh. Then he turned upon Ixley, a hand resting upon each shoulder while he gazed keenly into those lustrous dark orbs for a full minute in perfect silence. Then he spoke, slowly, gravely. "'Can we trust you, friend? Would you sell the boy to his arm you owe your own life unto his enemies? Would you lead him blindly to his death, Ixley, son of Azotl?' A wandering gaze, then the Indian appeared to flush hotly. He shook of those far from steady hands, drawing his knife and with free fingers tearing open his dress above the heart. Thrusting the weapon into Bruno's hand, he spoke in clear, distinct accents. Strike hard, white brother! Open heart! See if all black! Eye to eye, the two youths stood for a brief space in silence. Then the weapon was let fall, and Bruno gripped the Indian's hand and shook it most cordially. "'Strike you, Ixley. I just as soon smite my brother by birth.' "'And that's mighty right, too!' cried Waldo impetuously. "'I really begin to believe that you are all in the right, while I alone am left in the wrong,' frankly admitted the professor." End of chapter 21 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.